You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle, and our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. So what we do here is examine current events from a libertarian perspective, and we treat it with a little irreverence as well. And uh, I'm this is our, from our series called The Swamp Explained, and uh, I think this is the fifth one that we've done. Uh, approximately a year ago, it was about a year and two weeks ago, I went out to Students for Liberty in Washington, D.C. and got stranded in Philadelphia, and I met uh, Rob Cortell, and we ended up the next morning driving down to Washington, D.C. from Philly, and he started telling me all these stories, and I couldn't believe... I had to Google just to verify that he was who he was saying, because it was incredible. I couldn't believe that I ended up in the car with him, and it turns out Rob (laughs) is a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C., and he's worked for Republican presidential campaigns, which... We're going to talk a little bit about today, government agencies like the EPA. He's been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission, and he's been a candidate for Congress uh, for Congress as a Senate in the congressional race and a Senate race. And given his experience and iconoclastic view, uh, he gives us an insight into the swamp. Because what, we're, what we love to do here at We Are Libertarians is try to understand the world as opposed to tell the world how it ought to be. And uh, so when I met Rob, I I said, you know, it'd be great if we could do a series on the show explaining the swamp and just kind of giving an insight as to how politics actually works. And so, Rob, we've we've enjoyed this a lot. And I'll, I'll say at the the outset, we have plans to do this more frequently and we'll probably spin it off into its own RSS feed and uh, little podcast brand here soon. You've had some life changes. So. I enjoy this, and I I have heard from a lot of our listeners that they're like, you know, it's really interesting to hear from someone who lives in the swamp. You're not necessarily a swamp monster. Uh, you're probably more of a an irritant there, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there was certainly a time in my life when I I thought I wanted to become a swamp monster, you know. But um, no, I and and now I I uh, go back and forth between the swamp and uh, my home on the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, so, and it's actually kind of interesting because down here on the bay, you get uh, a lot of Trump voters who are very much not the kind of voter that uh, I see up in Northern Virginia, where my company is located, or in Washington D.C., where you know where I've lived all this time. So, so it's a lot of fun. I think anybody who's in, interested in politics, you watch The West Wing, and then you're like, I want to be a swamp monster. That sounds like fun. But then, yeah, I think. To, to do it, there has to be some level of. I, I've never like I knew that I could get there, but I'm too. I'm not good at kissing butt. I, I have a problem. Of, <laughs> I just have a problem of saying things that I shouldn't. I, I have a problem. Uh, I, I just am too honest at some points and in, in the wrong crowds, I guess. <laughs> well, you know though. But remember, um, when I came to Washington in 1973, um, I had. Uh, graduated with a degree in environmental science out of Rice and all that. And I had spent some time already as a student working with the Environmental Protection Agency. And it was a period when government was doing a lot of very interesting things uh, under, believe it or not, Richard Nixon. And so, you know, I got to Washington and and it was a very exciting time. Not long after I got there, the, we had the oil embargo and, you know, the country was slammed by that and the new agencies and and uh, I, I think there were just an awful Vietnam had, has was ending, 
and there were just an awful lot of people my age, which at that time was 23, um, who were inspired by the opportunity to do something for their fellow citizens. So, you know, no one was thinking about being a bureaucrat. You know, you, you were thinking about, and I actually see some of that. I've seen some of that in the last uh, four or five, six years as well, although it's sort of dying down and we now have the problem with uh, Google and some of these other companies that I, I uh, actually admire a lot of what they do. Employees actually don't want to be part of the government. So it's a very interesting tensions. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned that you were you worked for some presidential campaigns. And this is the part where I really went like, wow, is this real? Like you were actually the issues director for Gerald Ford's campaign and H.W. Uh, Bush's campaigns. In what right. in what years? What when were you? Well, Ford was 1976. And uh, and then uh, so so in the Ford campaign, you know, if you're working for a president, a sitting president, the campaign doesn't actually have much say in, uh, they're not the ones writing policy. Uh, you know, you have an administration, uh, the White House had uh, had already uh, a record. Uh, you sort of have to explain and repackage. And so in that one, I was uh, 26 years old, and at 25 going on 26. Um, they We had what's called the answer desk. Someone would call and say, what is the Ford position on this or that? And, you know, I'd have to dig out from the White House and other sources what uh, the administration had done and had a big group of volunteers of, of uh, some State Department, CIA and others, retirees, and uh, we would craft an answer. <clears throat> you know, it, it was the beginning of, of uh, political questionnaires. And, uh, you know, in the early days, uh, we sort of answered everything. And over time, campaigns have decided not to answer anything, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's a danger in having a position. <laughs> so, um, But I will say with the perspective of now that's 76, so that's uh, that 40-some years, right? 43 years. Uh, a lot of things never change. But so in that one, uh, the job really was to sort of figure out what the position was and, and package it in a way that was politically palatable. Uh, but uh, in 1979, uh, uh, the Bush campaign was different. That one, I really, uh, you know, the job really was to pull a bunch of advisors together, figure out what the options were that were consistent with kind of the philosophy the candidate had, and then uh, turn that into a position paper. And, uh, you know, I had, I had gone through grad school and gone back to Houston uh, uh, to start a company, uh, that was doing, uh, we were using salt domes uh, for the commercial sector. So this is kind of a divergence here from the presidential saga, but, you know, um, uh, oil uh, is, you find these big uh, magnetic uh, domes of salt that kind of bubble up over oil. It's sort of, an, it, it indicates where oil can be found. And then the oil is pulled out. Uh, and the government decided during the embargo in the 70s, early 70s, to flip the process and fill some of these with oil for uh, emergencies to refill it, put it back in the ground. And that was the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And I had gone out there with a guy who had formerly headed that to see if we could turn that into a commercial venture. And we were out in Houston. And one day I get a call from George H.W. Bush. 
who I didn't know at that time. Uh, I had worked for his Senate race as a student volunteer at Rice, but uh, he, he had uh, heard about my work with the Ford campaign from several advisors to Ford who were now advisors to him. And uh, I went over, had lunch with him at his office, and uh, I liked what he was doing. He, he was a very strong Republican with huge amounts of experience. You know, he'd been ambassador to China. He'd been chairman of the Republican Party. He was a, a several-term congressman, a, a business guy. He started one of the most uh, impactful oil companies uh, uh, in the country at that time. His company was the first one, Zapata Oil was the first one to go offshore and dig uh, in the water, you know, send wells down on the water. So, you know, he was the, the very, it was very exciting to meet him. Was he at, was he the head of the CIA at that point? No, he had already been head of the CIA. Okay. And, uh, which he, he always said was his favorite job. He, he just loved the CIA. <laughs> yeah, you're talking to a libertarian. That's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, but the other side of it, think about, uh, you know, a lot of the CIA, uh, early CIA was certainly people just like George H.W. Bush. Now they were blue, blue, blue bloods out of the Northeast. They were well-educated Yaleys, Harvard guys, you know, Penn State, um, all these kind of people who, who, and, and they were very patriotic people. And of course, a lot of them did it at very great risk. Uh, Julia Childs, right? Wasn't CIA, but she was uh, an operative uh, for the British government, I think at that time or the I can't remember which. She no, uh-huh. it was it was the American version. Of, I think was it was it? the OSS. I think the that's OSS, what it, that, it she, was. The OSS. She created shark repellent. That's that, <laughs> she, that was her claim to fame. Yeah. Yeah. That's so right. and her husband was too. You know the whole the whole gang. So so, so, so you were fairly so you were fairly high up in the Ford campaign, right? So how did you get yeah. in, how did you get into that, and how did you get at such a young age that level of responsibility? I, I, that was pretty accidental. Um, I had been uh, in the Ford White House uh, as a, a senior junior staffer with the uh, the uh, Presidential Clemency Board. You know, we talked before about Ford after he pardoned Nixon had to, uh, there was such an outroar that he, uh, of um, anger from certain quarters that he, he also wanted to figure out what he could do to, quote, heal the nation. And... Um, so he decided to pardon the Vietnam era war resistors. The war had just ended the year before for American involvement and set up the presidential clemency board uh, to kind of go through all the records and see the kinds of uh, things that had given them bad discharges and all that. And if you recall from earlier shows, we ran some 35,000 young people through that uh, in the course of one day short of a year. Uh, and uh, that was also very inspirational in its own way. I think, you know, one of the guys I've talked about before was uh, an African-American who'd gone to three tours in the war and come back on the third tour through Germany and gotten busted on a drug charge and cashiered and lost his medical benefits. He'd been wounded several times, which was fundamentally unfair, and and that's kind of where Ford was coming from. So actually I heard an interesting uh uh, read something interesting the other day or heard it, I can't remember, about uh, Ford is probably the only guy, and we can talk about this later in the State of the Union, who ever gave a State of the Union that did not begin with uh, the State of the Union is good. <laughs> he, 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 he said the State of the Union is not good. And 
went on to kick off 10% inflation and unemployment and, and all of these things. And of course, he lost. He barely lost, but he did lose, uh, despite having, I think, turned around a fair amount of that. But anyway, so, what was, so, that's, so, I, was, so I was after the clemency board, uh, three of us got a grant from uh, Notre Dame University to write a book about um, that group of people that had gone through about Vietnam veterans in the whole Vietnam era. Um, Ted Hesburgh was the father. Ted Hesburgh was a head of Notre Dame and he had been a board member. And um, so I was the low man on a totem pole of three people writing this book, but we had collected the data from all of their experiences. And um, the, the net of that was that, um, you know, there were probably a hundred million uh, young people who were technically eligible by age during the course of the war to go to war, but 51% were immediately rejected because they were women, mm. which would not happen today. And then uh, a, a big chunk were rejected because they were college or in college or graduate school. And, and eventually something like only about 3 million, that's a big number, but only about 3% of the people who were technically eligible by age actually made it to Vietnam. Um, so it was, uh, and the title of the book was chance and circumstance and it's, uh, it's not in publication anymore, but you can find it on Amazon. And it, it talked about a lot of those very things that you, whether you ended up being drafted or, or, or sent to the war or not was totally a, a, a chance or circumstance. So anyway, so at some point I, I um, decided to start volunteering for the campaign, which was not far from my office. And, uh, and I, one day I got made an offer and I took it. And that offer was to run that, that operation. You know, I'd gone over to help them write um, policy positions and all those things. So it was sort of was a natural. Mm. So what was, what was Gerald Ford like as a person? I mean, I imagine you spent a lot of time around him. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time with him uh, per se because he was, uh, we, you know, the campaign's a totally different entity and the, the clemency board was in a different office too. After a while, we started out right at the White House. But, um, you know, he was a, a very uh, affable, uh, natural kind of person. And, you know, uh, until the Bushes were there, it was said that the, the guy that the Secret Service who was around him all day long and all night long liked him better than anybody they'd been around. Hmm. And, you know, and they, they have all liked the Bushes who were very affable and easygoing too, particularly, uh, uh, W and, uh, but, uh, he was, he was athletic. I, of course, I would just remember his stumbling down the airplane steps. And, and uh, despite the fact that he probably was the most ath athletic president we've had in quite a long time, he, he was portrayed as this physical kind of buffoon. You know, Chevy, Chevy Chase and Saturday Night Live had just begun, and yeah, Chevy Chase. That's played, right. Yeah, he falling that's into right. the Christmas tree. Yeah. That's right. But he was a some university. Great, there were some great shows, but you know what? It didn't bother him. He 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 was the kind of person who kind of understood the game, and he had a long, long, long record in the Congress. So it was uh, for him. He knew what the game was. So you then get this call from George H.W. Bush yeah, in right. 78, 79, and then you meet with him. And what's that first meeting like? Uh, you know, it was uh, uh, it was just uh, two people sitting down. You know, he he had heard about me from uh, uh, a guy named Dave Gergen, who is still a commentator and who was in the 
for the White House in the campaign, and then uh, who was close to him, and then he uh, and another guy, uh, a mentor of mine, Paul McAvoy, who later was on the Council of Economic Advisors under Ford, and who I got to know well at Yale later, and uh, and he had formed a political action committee uh, to support candidates for Congress, and so we talked about uh, you know his race for Senate. And, and uh, what he was thinking about doing, and and uh, later he, so, and we agreed that uh, I'd start helping out with the campaign. I started as a volunteer, really, and uh, in the Houston office, and uh, and that started out fairly uh, low key. I was actually the uh, later on. I was the third person who came on the staff under you know who was hired. There's a group of us who. <clears throat> We're called uh, the three percenters. We were with Bush before he was an asterisk in the polls. <laughs> and, and, you know, an asterisk is under three percent. Uh, but he he was just he's just he was just a very easygoing guy. You know, he uh, uh, and he also was naturally athletic and uh, and uh, just just a nice, nice person. You know, who are the other who are the other two people who who's hired before you were? Uh I think, uh, well, let's see, probably Margaret Tutwiler was there before that. And uh, uh, let's see, David Keene came later. I, I was one of the group that interviewed him. Uh, I think David Bates was there. Uh, he was uh, kind of the keeper of the, of the body and everything associated uh, with uh, Bush. Uh, a guy named Dave Sparks came in just about that time. Uh, then. Uh, and uh, Jim Baker was already chairman. Um, I think, uh, you know, um, Carl Rove was very involved in the, uh, the congressional uh, pack, but he really was not involved in the campaign, the presidential campaign. And, you know, there, I think there was some, uh, there was some, a little bit of bad blood between some of the staff people at that point. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, not with the president, not with Bush or Carl, but it, I think Carl just decided he didn't want to do the presidential campaign. So Bush had <clears> run for Congress and Carl Rove worked on that campaign. Um, I don't know if he worked on the congressional campaigns. I, you know, Carl uh, was probably just out of the uh, RNC. He, he, if I recall, he was running the uh, young Republican uh, operation, but um, but he was very involved uh, with Bush um, with the congressional PAC, you know, the political action committee that Bush set up to to uh, to um, fund nineteen seventy eight uh, campaigns. Got it. So he he started a, a PAC to basically it's sort of like what Nixon did in sixty uh, six. What Nixon did. Well, in they 66- all do it. All yeah. these candidates, do right? It. So he went around the country in sixty six helping congressional campaigns. Right. And so they owed him a favor in 68, and that's how he kind of – I just read uh, James James Buchanan's books oh, yeah. on uh, on Nixon, which were fascinating reads. I, I really didn't know Nixon was that – that Buchanan was that close to Nixon. So it sounds like you were his Buchanan. You were H.W. Buchanan. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> not quite. <laughs> but no. so, so was W. around any – were you around him at all through Well, so campaign? the way that evolved was that <clears> – <throat> So um, I, I, you know, helped out as a volunteer in the congressional pack. And then, of course, once the elections were over, then they started going really lickety split. 
down the road. And and uh, if I recall, I think Bush put in a hundred thousand of his own money, which was a lot of money in those days, and uh, uh, considered a significant commitment. And then um, <coughs> uh, campaign started in earnest and set up a headquarters in in D.C. in Alexandria. Uh, I, I still remember the building, and uh, uh, and I would fly every month or so between Houston and Kenny Bunkport in Washington. Uh, my job at that point by then was to put together advisors and to, so for example, uh, he had a group of people on the economy, which included uh, Bill Niskanen, who was uh, the chief economist for, I think Ford, if I recall, had a very senior guy from uh, uh, 3M, a really nice guy. He uh, had uh, George Schultz on foreign policy. I mean, he consulted Kissinger. You know, he basically knew everybody from the establishment. If they were someone, he knew them. And and um, so the job was really to put together a series of uh, events up at Kenny Bunkport um, where they would spend the night uh, or two nights with uh, the Bushes and the neighbors. And, uh, you know, we'd have a couple sessions. They had a, a big, uh, a big room at Walker's Point, which is the family house, um, you know, overlooking the water there. Uh, it was a big old New England style house. And of course, it's been added to many, many, many times since then. And, and uh, Debbie has a place there. And I'm sure, you know, everybody in the family has some place in the compound these days. Um, but um, Barbara kind of manned the kitchen. Uh, she would uh, prepare these big meals, uh, massive meals of just great stuff, you know, soups at lunch. Uh, I wandered into the kitchen one day and, you know, I, I, I love to cook and uh, I am a good cook. And she, I remember her saying, Rob, if you're not going to work, get your butt out of the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, she, you know, she also was very down to earth, just a wonderful person. And uh, we all would stay. Uh, I, I stayed at Blueberry Hill, which was uh, uh, Jane Russell's. I think it was Jane Russell's home there on, uh, you know, in Kennebunkport. And others would stay around. And then uh, we'd convene for these meetings and and have a set of topics. And, and Bush would lead it. And, um, you know, my job was sort of to prod people periodically. I remember getting the evil eye one time. I um, there that we had someone advising on on uh, energy who made the point which was incorrect that uh, you know we talked about the strategic petroleum reserve which I had mentioned earlier uh, the idea was that you would store oil uh, government would store oil that they could use in an emergency and uh, one of the decisions uh, this guy said well you know that's so screwed up you know the 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 uh, pumps can only put it in. They don't have a way to take it out, which sounds like one of those typical government bureaucratic things. <laughs> sounds so, so <laughs> but, yeah. But, but in fact, it was wrong. They, they had designed it uh, in a, a sort of typical government way to be a pump that if you had to take it out, you flipped it over and pumped it out rather than, you know, so, right. so cost-saving measure. But And I, I just remember saying saying that. And, and boy, did I get the evil eye, you know, you're not, you know, I think I was probably 29 then, and you're not supposed to uh, 
contradict the, the great gurus. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> especially when you're of, trying to get their favor, I imagine. That's yeah. right. When you're trying to get their favor. Yeah, so, that, was, so, that was the job. So, like, I I think most of us have no idea how, like, a meeting like that would go, how that is conducted at at such a high level. Uh, You know, is the meeting a schmooze meeting where he's trying to get them to endorse him, or is this, like, a legitimate fact-finding mission where they're, you you know, you're you're taking the notes and then putting it into a, a policy paper? Like, what was the the goal of the meeting, and then how does how did it kind of operate those sorts of preliminary meetings? Well, I, I, at a high level, you know, I, I, I think Bush was very, very interested in policy per se, although he was kind of a practical guy and he kind of got impatient, you know, if you got into the weeds too much. But um, he, unless it was on foreign policy, which, of course, he loved. And um, so at the high level, what you really want people to, to do is tell you, and these are all experts and knowledgeable, you want them to tell you what they think are the are the problems in a given area facing the country. You know, you want um, uh, you want uh, someone to say, I, I think that, uh, you know, a Paul Volcker, for example, you want him to say that um, inflation is the worst thing going on right now. And unless we do X, Y, and Z, we can't contain it. And somebody else will say, well, I think we need a tax cut. And someone else will say, we can't afford a tax cut because the budget, the, uh, the deficit is so big. And of course, the deficit's then was nothing compared to what it is now, and including as part of the GDP. And uh, so, you know, you really want people to flesh to flush out what they think the big issues are and some approaches. And then after these meetings are over, uh, you know, you have one big kind of meeting, and then then you have probably another one later after lunch and talk about issues that were specifically raised that he would have a very specific interest in. So he might say, you know, politically, I. I need to do a tax cut, but what I'm hearing from you guys is it's not a good idea, you know, because it expands the deficit. And that's where you also get the divergence between the strains of, you know, within the party and and the economy and economic profession and everything else. Um, so, and then the staff, and, and I was the staff <laughs> on those, had to go away. And I worked with uh, McAvoy and and Gergen and a couple others, and we would, and I, my job was to go out and gather all the facts and write a, the papers and talk to these guys offline uh, later. And of course, it was all, really was all telephone conversation because we did not have internet uh, and email and all those kinds of things. I kept meticulous logs of the, of the, uh, of the conversations. You know, some days I talked to 50 people or more wow. to try to get something answered. And and then some of this would feed into speeches. And a lot of the speech, speechifying was built around, uh, you know, building the image of a knowledgeable candidate. So uh, you know, we had a speech up, I uh, still remember, up at the uh, Economic Club in Detroit. And I remember driving into that in the, really a blinding snowstorm. I had no idea that the snowstorm was going to happen, so I was totally unprepared. <laughs> sort of, you know, it's hard to imagine you get on a plane without knowing, but that's exactly what happened. And then, um, so he would do his economic platform there, and we had to basically come up with a tax cut. You know, it was decided we had to have a tax cut. And actually, actually, that was interesting. His, now, did he look his, at you and say, read my lips, I want a tax cut? <laughs> yeah, it was sort of like that. Well, actually, what he said was, 
we can't afford a tax cut unless you can show me how to do it um, uh, and not raise the deficit. And so uh, uh, I kind of had to sit down with Paul McAvoy and some of these other guys and say, okay, we got to have a tax cut. Uh, it's got to cut individual rates, uh, got to do something for business. Um, but we also need to have a feedback loop, you know, that if we cut taxes X, it's not just straight off the top. It actually uh, creates an increase in income for the country as well. So, uh, and economic activity. So that, uh, you know, there's always a little push and pull in these kinds of things. And uh, he, he absolutely would not do it unless we could prove to him that it would have a net uh, economic benefit as well as political benefit. Which which really is, when you look at what cost him that 92 election, it was the read my lips thing, you know, no new taxes. But then, you know, he's presented by the Democrats this option of, you know, f- what was it uh, for every, you know, one cut we get to spend? Or what was the, the formula? But it eventually yeah, led... Something like, yeah, that's right. You know. Yeah, it, it, I think that was the one-to-one at that point. That may have been at that point but it really right. led to you know the, we talk about the surpluses that that clinton had but it was really bush that helped achieve that and it but it cost him his political career well that it did and you know reagan also had tax increases as well that people don't recall i i would say on the, the clinton what what ultimately led to the surpluses the very large surpluses was that um on the one hand republicans he, he wanted to um increase spending and Republicans wanted to have a tax cut and decrease spending. So ultimately you have this convergence of he couldn't get the one and they couldn't get the other. Mm. So he was forced to have, um, he, he was, he, 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 they both had uh, an increase in taxes and a, and a, and a cut in spending, you know, that the Republicans wanted on the other side. So, so, so this the, the, that story, you know, I didn't know that story. It's, it's all really fascinating because I knew I knew what you did, but I didn't know how you did it. Yeah. And so it leads me to two questions that are kind of related to our, our modern times. So the first is, you know, when you look at the 2016 campaign, obviously you see that type of preparation in you know, in Hillary Clinton's campaign, but when you look at Gary Johnson or Donald Trump, like I, I imagine having that experience working for George H.W. Bush, knowing the man that he was, and then also how he operated and how seriously he took all this. Um, you know, he, he, you had to, you have to be watching some of this Russia stuff with Stone and Papadopoulos, <laughs> and like his core of advisors going, "Wow!" And then you know, on the flip side, libertarians. This is my main criticism of Gary Johnson in 2016 is that. Where where are the where's the strategy? Where's the policies? Where where's right. the where's the preparation that goes into this? Because you know I've I've read historical books, you know, like Donald Regan's book and some of these other books that kind of talk about these planning meetings when you're going into campaigns and and you just didn't see that. I mean, you had to be sitting there pulling your hair out in 2016, going, "Is anybody going to prepare to be president who's on the right?" Well, remember that um, that I was supporting. Uh, Jeb Bush at the time, and I've known Jeb, and you asked, was, was W around at the time? Um, both were there at Kenny Bunkport at one time or another. I mean, I, I remember meeting W uh, for the very first time. He was kind of stretched out on a blanket on the lawn um, at Walker's Point with Laura, who he, I think they were just recently married. Uh, and uh, I had met Jeb, I think, in, in uh, Houston earlier, but uh, so I was supporting Jeb 
in 20, the 2016 election. And he, he from the get-go, formed issue groups. He had a very talented uh, issue director who had the kind of job I had, uh, you know, however many million years before. And, uh, and so, you know, I was involved with transportation and a couple other groups. And um, he, he was every bit, he was very serious, every bit as serious as his father had been. And, and, uh, and Debbie had that too. I was involved with those. Uh, uh, but, you know, these things do get, they also, it, it is always uh, a tension <clears throat> between uh, politics and policy and campaigns. So, and you're right, I don't think there was any thinking at all in the Trump <laughs> campaign. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he was an accidental president in so many ways, and he probably didn't expect to be president. But um, the, uh, uh, so, you know, for example, uh, the Jones Act as an example. So when, which we've talked about, um, which, which is the law that requires you to use U.S. built, bought, man-owned, operated ships. Well, if people want to know more about it, they they can go watch your your presentation. Like Earlier. you you texted yeah, you texted me. Right. I, I tweeted it out. But if you go look up the Jones Act on the Cato Institute, you can watch a video of Rob laying the smackdown on the Jones Act. <laughs> and they're publishing a book now too. Oh, but, cool. Uh, yeah, but um, but so you know, I remember in the Ford, I think it was the Bush campaign. Jim Baker one day said, Rob, what is the Jones Act? What position should we take? It, you know, it's the, that kind of stuff. And the labor unions, the maritime labor unions, one, only one union would endorse Republicans. I, I think it was the master's mates and pilots. And, and um, so it's the, you know, the officers basic, basically. And, um, and, uh, and uh, the, uh, I went back and researched it and it was this law and I, you know, it sort of sounded like, you know, who knew? And I, I have no idea what I recommended. Um, I do know that when uh, W was running, um, I remember being at a fundraiser with him and with Carl Rove, who was working for him. And uh, and W said, well, so what are you doing? And and uh, his father had nicknamed me Quartz for my last name. And uh, so what are you doing, Quartz? And, um, and I said, well, I'm working with this Jones Act reform coalition to try to get rid of the Jones Act. And he turns to Carl and says, what's that? And Carl says, American bottoms. And he says, oh, I hate that law because <laughs> he was an oil guy. <laughs> and, uh, and the working group on transportation and energy recommended opposing the Jones Act uh, to W and that kind of, and you know, the governor, former governor of Michigan was one of the, was the head of that group at the time. And so I had a lot of clout. It was a good group. And sure enough, uh, that was that was going to be the position. And, you know, I, I, it was Haley Barber, I think, who intervened uh, uh, saying you can't take that position. You know, you'll lose whatever the hell, Louisiana. I don't know. But anyway, so it was it was kind of funny and uh, no surprise. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things that Trump should be opposed to. But because it sounds like it's American jobs. Well. Yeah, but that yeah, right. And and so if you want to know more about the Jones Echo, you can uh just search swamp in yeah. uh in the RSS feed and you'll see our past episodes. But that leads, but that's an example of, of the way politics, you know, and and, and that's policy one, collide. Yeah, and that's my that's another point is do you see how do you see the libertarian or even Trump conservative, I don't know what they are. Do you see the critique that 
there's some there's some group thinking that when you have a George H W Bush putting together, you, you know, he's giving you the list of people that you ought to call, and it's and it's the guy who worked for Kissinger. So of course you're always going to kind of have these same strains of policy because you're yeah. talking to the establishment, and it, you know, how much room was there for dissenting opinions on the prevailing uh, doctrines of the day? Because you know, somebody like H.W., the, the criticism is like, well, he is. He's he's a public servant, but he's also serving the, the public that has maintained its own power. So how, how does how how does uh, well, that, a counter opinion getting to in. sort of the disruption argument? Right. That, how does it that, sneak that in? Trump supporters make for him. Right. Which is this is a system that's ripe for disruption. And, and I don't I, I, so, I don't disagree with that. You know, I'm in in spent a lot of time with startups and technology and all that. So I'm, I personally like disruption. And I would say that if anybody ever did any research on my own political history, um, uh, I took kind of a, a mixture of a disruptive posture in a lot of things. And I, I, but I think by the same token, politics is a conservative business and, and people who are expert, you know, this, uh, you know, that um, you, you're trying to both uh, optimize for risk and and reward, and so uh, you, you don't get any you don't get any um, any payback for losing, <laughs> you know, in, in uh, foreign policy or the economy or anything else. And, and I and you know honestly, um, I, I just think a lot of politicians stay in office because they don't take. A risk, honestly, your 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 reward is you get reelected by not taking a risk. And I I think of, about my own uh, congressional opponent, you know, many many years ago, who was just just lost the election in Florida uh, uh, to uh, the former governor, and uh, uh, he'd been in politics for forty some years. I mean, he'd been in six or seven years by the time I ran against him. So, and I can't think of anything he did ever risky. So well, that was away. part of the problem. Is Bill Nelson was no risk, no risk taker whatsoever. You could probably elaborate yeah. on this more. And, and that was the rap that he'd been there for a long time, but he'd never stuck his neck out. And so, what, what did you really have to show? And so, you've got somebody like Rick Scott who can pump in a lot of money and and make that that point. And there is a weird thing in elections where it's like I'm going to get things done, and then right. the incentive once you get in office is not to get anything done. Well, that's right. That's right. Well, and and uh, Bill is not not a lot different than than most politicians, to be honest. You know, I, I, I you just don't risk is not how you get reelected. Yeah. Um, and, and if you're but if you're willing to, to take it on, sometimes there's a big payback. I I uh, so so Bush. You know, you're, it's a good question. Um, would he or did he ever step outside? Um, uh, you know, I probably can't name any times that he took a really risky position in in uh, on a lot of these things. But on the other hand, um, it it required uh, a lot of uh, gumption to actually prosecute a war in the Gulf. Remember um, when uh, that that was uh, that was probably not an easy decision uh, to send American troops. Uh, no matter how well equipped or no matter how likely the outcome uh, to uh, the Gulf and, and do a war. But he did it. And um, I would say that uh, in his case there, all of his experience kind of came to bear. And he, he uh, 
he went after allied support. He, he understood the military. He was able to understand the, um, the intelligence he was getting. Um, and he could calculate, um, uh, on a rational basis, what the, the actual risk would be. Well, so, so, so let me, you know, let me clear. experience and all that comes together. Yeah. So let me not, I, I, I won't debate on that, but I, I want to yeah. clarify my question in that when, when you're having these meetings, it's not a matter of making a risk, but it was there that, that type of meeting that you're describing is, is the, get anything is the inf- out of school there. is the information coming yeah. in you know like if or, yeah. or are you only getting an overton window of establishment to establishment light and never anything that may be uh, out, outside the bounds uh, the norms of modern washington politics in those days well i think probably probably as much as you could get you know i i think bush probably had better um, sourcing better sources of information and data than an awful lot of presidential candidates. Remember, he, he really had been there a long time. Right. He, he, uh, he had been in the Congress. He'd been in the CIA. He'd been in the political establishment. He, you know, he had been in China. Um, so each one of these, you know, he, if he needed to know something, he would call me and say, call so-and-so. And, and he could get that kind of uh, advice. And I don't think every candidate has that opportunity. Uh, that he had. So is the premise of my question flawed in that the the the, the type of decisions that he was making it, it was it was hard facts it was data that it's just like here here are the numbers of you know 15 million gallons over here and like if that makes sense like it's yeah i yes and no i think i think your question the premise is a good one in the sense that um are you just getting the kind of information you want to hear from people who think just like you do, you right. know, and that's that, and, and that's an issue not just in politics but in business, by the way, right? Um, and life, and, and, <laughs> and business guys, but are, are by and large risk averse as well. Um, so, um, so, so I think the question is: Are you self-aware? Do you understand that there might be something else out there? And sometimes I think experience can uh, make you aware. Um, it can also lead you down a trap. You know, I've seen this 19 times before. It's obviously the same. And, and in fact, it's not the same. It's a very different situation. So, um, you know, he was a guy who really, he, who wanted to get, get information. So he, he was a, not somebody who, you know, who leapt at whatever his gut happened to do that day. So, okay. So let's fast forward to the funeral. Uh, yeah. So you actually went to the funeral. You said you were in what row? I, I actually watched the funeral knowing that you were probably going. So I was like looking in the back trying to see if I could see yeah. you. I never found you, but I, I, I will probably <laughs> go back now and see if I can. But uh, yeah. so you actually how, how do you get invited to a presidential funeral? Um, you know, they they start planning the funeral the day you take office as president. <laughs> OK. <laughs> uh, and. um he, you know, he had planned, his was planned in meticulous detail. A, a very good friend of mine who I'd worked with literally from the Ford White House on, actually, I think I knew her when she was in the Nixon White House, is a woman named Bobby Kilberg, who is a political powerhouse and very big in the technology community in Northern Virginia. She, she, uh, she would be considered a moderate. Uh, there are people on the right who consider her a leftist Republican. I would consider her a moderate. 
right of center, but she runs the Northern Virginia Technology Council. She really built that organization. She worked for Bush. Um, she was an advisor during the campaign. She worked for the vice, when he became vice president, she did outreach for him. Uh, she's a very sophisticated uh, attorney and all that. And Bobby was in charge of the funeral. Now, she was close to the family. She was in Kennebunk all the time. And uh, they just had a plan down to the infinite detail, including who would be invited. And, you know, it was very interesting. There were, you tend to think of people as all being the same. But, in fact, there were waves and eras of Bush people. So uh, I had uh, worked as a volunteer for his Senate race when I was a student. And, and there were people in that office then, a woman at Shirley Green and some others, for example, uh, who were there in the, the campaign in 1979 that he eventually dropped out in the fall and worked for, went to work with Reagan and became the vice president. Then there was a vice presidential staff, which was very different than, uh, for the most part, than the campaign staff. And then there was the presidential staff. And there was carryover, but that was somewhat different. And then, um, and there were people he knew from CIA and people from China and people from all of his previous walks of life. And um, uh, he, uh, you're on lists, <laughs> you know. And the question is, can they find you? And so, you know, I I got an invitation uh, via email within hours of his death, and then I had an invitation uh, to go out to see the plant, to see the arrival of the plane and the body and uh, out at Andrews. Um, so that was, you know, we, uh, we had to leave on, uh, I think that was Monday. Uh, we had to leave, I had to leave the house like at 6 a.m. to get up to a local hotel here uh, where, uh, Omni Shoram, I think, where uh, they had buses for those of us who were invited to do that. And the buses we, we waited around a couple hours and then the buses drove all the way out to Alley to, uh, to uh, Andrews Air Force Base, which was probably 45 minute drive and go through all the checkpoints. And, and then uh, there were three buses and then uh, we get to the receiving site and you were sitting at the standing at the airport, <laughs> you know, this military airport for another hour, hour and a half in cold weather. And, uh, and then we, uh, a bus arrived from the CIA <laughs> with a bunch of people who had worked with them and then one other bus from some other operation. And, you know, the plane arrived finally and, and uh, came up. And it was very, very impressive. You know, the plane kind of did a flyover and a loop and then landed right in front of all of us. And um, they had the military band and, welc and welcome committee and, and – uh, you know, the family got off, uh, W came, got off, and Jeb and Marvin and Doro and all the rest, and Neil and all the family. And and, um, uh, and then everybody kind of gathered in another group. And then eventually the rear of the plane opened and they brought out the casket and the music played. <clears throat> I have I, I have video of that. It, it was uh, both somber and impressive. Uh, and then you know, everybody loaded in cars. This probably took an hour or so. And, um, and then, uh, as the, uh, they started loading in the cars, uh, W came by and Laura and 
the family walked up to those of us who were there to uh, who'd been part of the staff, and he just said, "Thank you very much for coming out." And uh, he he was very uh, I think he was very emotional at that point. And then they all took off, and every and you know the frankly the crowd was emotional. And then uh, we eventually hopped in the buses and drove back, and it took all day long wow. to do this. And then um, there were other events around that. And then Tuesday, uh, one of his uh, guys who'd worked for him, for him I, a guy named Tom Collimore, who's, uh, I think, VP at the Chamber of Commerce, uh, threw uh, a reception for all of the people who were there from out of town for Bush. And it was quite an event at the Chamber's probably the best bar scene I've been to in a long time. You know, one of the interesting things in DC is you've got all these receptions and they, they have sort of fundamental, they have like Jack, you know, Jim Beam and they have a basic bourbon and sometimes rye and they have a red and a white wine and they, <laughs> they have, drinks, and they have drink sponsors. <laughs> yeah. And they have beer, but they don't have vermouth <laughs> to make a Manhattan typically, <laughs> or they, they don't have bitters or they, you know, and I like, I like brown, cocktails and uh so uh that had the best bar i've been to in washington <laughs> in a long time and it might be because it was an older crowd uh and then uh and that was really wonderful they had a uh, passed out uh, little electric candles and i have mine that for everybody at uh you know at stroke of a certain hour to uh uh, turn the candle on all around the country. People were doing this and they were hmm. throwing. So that was really nice for a moment of silence. And, and uh, But that was like old home week. I, I will say there was so many people I had not seen in so long and everybody felt the same. And, and, you know, it was both uh, kind of, uh, you know, it was uh, the sadness was kind of, you know, way off in the background and people were really glad to see each other and they sure exchanged war stories and, whatever happened to so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And then the next day was a funeral and kind of repeat of getting up early and getting to you know, the bus and hurry up and wait. And, and then uh, it was a much bigger group of us. And we, uh, there were sections in the cathedral, the National Cathedral, which is, if you've never been to it or ever been to it, is magnificent. And I, I have uh, been. It's, it's truly amazing. It's and, stunning. Yeah, and it took, you know, I think 75 or 80 years to finally finish, but, um, it's, it was divided into sections and, and we were, those of us from the early days were pretty, pretty close up to the front there, you know, on the main aisle. Um, I was about eight rows back from the front, but I, I could see, um, when Obama and Jimmy, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter and all walked in and, and Trump and, and, uh, everybody greeting each other. And, um, you know, every every time I turn around, I see somebody I hadn't seen in in ten or twenty or thirty or sometimes forty years um, from the early days. Uh, uh, and then it kind of, I really chuckled. Several of us did uh, to the left under the eaves. You know, you they're basically they're two big main sections down the main floor of the cathedral, and then you have the 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 columns, and then kind of under the sides, there's a bunch of other places. And they had put the whole Congress over <laughs> under one of the eaves. <laughs> I noticed I, that. And so that's one of the questions, not to be indelicate, but, you know, <laughs> you know I read I read Our Town uh, by uh, the, the New York Times writer, and it opens with Tim Russert's funeral and talks about, how, you know, the state funeral and, and kind of. 
And I wonder if something like that, are, are you like, you're in row eight and then you just know someone in row 10 is like, I can't believe he's in row. Like, is it, is, is oh, it, I'm sure. <laughs> is it, and I, so I saw like my congressman sitting under the, under the, like way in the back. I was like, I got to get a better congressman. <laughs> well, actually we, we, we saw a friendly, uh, uh, Barbara Comstock, who I'm, I'm friends with and, and had just lost her race. Uh, you know, in the in the sweep, and and Barbara was walking by. We several of us invited her to sit with us, which she did. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but the sections were, you know, the, it was sectioned off. I mean, and 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 uh, uh, so I was on the in, I was in the outside of the row. There were about eight seats, I think, eight or nine. And I had a, I had invited, and you know, I was allowed to bring one person. And my wife was at board meeting out of town; otherwise, she'd have gone. And I had an email from another, another young guy. At the time, it was a guy named John Osborne, who was a, a great friend. But he was a, a student when he went to work for me in the, the, the campaign in 1979, I think. And he had just sent me an email saying, uh, how do I get a seat? You know, this, you, know you asked. <laughs> and, uh, Man, I should have been, well, I should have been quicker. Turns out I have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and John, you know, met me and, and uh, of course, sat with me there. And it was really nice. I mean, you know, he he said, and I had another person say to me the same similar something. He said, you know, I just have to thank you um, uh, for bringing me into the campaign and letting me work, and that led to all sorts of things in my career. And I, you know, I turned around, and there's another woman, uh, Connie Horner, who had a very successful career. She uh, she had uh, uh, written some for the New York Times, uh, Sunday Magazine, some interesting articles. And, and she came as a volunteer. And um, uh, and as she told me, she said, Rob, I have to thank you for doing all this stuff. You accepted me, uh, you know. Uh, and she says, "My, I began, you know, the campaign made me, uh, sent me to you and as a typist <laughs> and, uh, and, and answering the phones. And she said, you said to me after two or three days, I think there's some better things for you to do. <laughs> and, you know, Connie did really well. She became head of the Office of Personnel Management and senior person at HHS and this and that. And now is a major corporate board. It's just a fabulous, fabulously accomplished I think person. that's that's such a great point, too, that, you know, my own career has really been helped and made by starting out in, in college volunteering for campaigns. You know, yeah. I, I owe everything in my career to starting out in campaigns. And it's like, if you want to end up in the elite, then that's where you start shoveling, you know, envelopes uh, and stuffing right. envelopes. And then, you know, 25 years later, you look back at that moment when you decided to volunteer for Bros McVeigh or Scott Keller, you know, people who are forgotten in your local politics, but then you owe your connections. And it's, right. not, it's not the volunteering that matters. It's the connections of, you know, being involved with these people. And it really, well, it's, 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 if you know, you're a young person. Is, yeah. In politics, you have to trust people. Yeah. Uh, you have to know who you can trust. Um, and I, I think the art of volunteering, you know, the act of volunteering is is an act of trust to the politician on the other side of it. So although, as you know, these days, there are people who are stuck in campaigns to be the spy. Uh, and I'm sure there was some of that then. But uh, anyway, so it was, it was, again, it was just one of these very interesting it was a, partly a social event too, and um, and kind of across the aisle from my row of seats, Henry Kissinger was over there, and you know, right up front, Jim Baker and the whole family, and you know, it was it was really um, 
you know, you obviously period, you catch somebody's eye, you knew in the family or this or that. Uh, it was, it was sort of sad being set up. And then, you know, some of the great uh, remarks, uh, Meacham gave a great eulogy. Uh, and, uh, uh, the Canadian Maloney was really wonderful and, and all the, a lot of war stories and all that. And uh, I would say the, the saddest moment probably was, um, well, actually, uh, I thought the, the preacher from uh, Houston, who had been his, his preacher down there, gave a terrific uh, homily. And, and so all that was, it was a really uh, very moving and inspiring. But for the most part, people were kind of happy, and and uh, there was a group of young people in the row in front of me, uh, uh, young men and women, all in their twenties, and uh, I would say they were as emotional as anybody I had seen. It turns out they were part of his Houston staff, hmm. so you know they had been with him and very close to him there. And then uh, uh, you know Jim Baker, who's fabulous person uh he was just distraught you know yeah. he was uh, probably more so than anybody you could see and then uh, but i would say the the this the moment that was <clears throat> probably the saddest for people who all came home was when they took the casket out you know that's where you really kind of know this is this is it you know yeah so yeah so but it was a great uh moment and uh, real celebration and, and you know of course he's he he's he represents as you sort of alluded uh, a kind of politician and uh, a person who you don't see a lot of these days i i felt this way about the mccain funeral where mccain's yeah. funeral i mean the juxtaposition between the two just shows you the difference in the character of the men where mm -hmm. mccain's funeral is just kind of gross because he made it all about the times that people will not remember in 30 years where you know, Bush's funeral was really about you. You could tell the family said no Trump bashing, um, right. you know, and it was it was all about H.W. the man. But you really get a sense with these with these two funerals that this is this is the it was almost a funeral for a type of politics that will never return. And, yeah. you know, with McCain's funeral, it's like they're you know, you have you know biden giving the speech and it's like the the frenemies <laughs> you know yeah, th right. that that era that <laughs> era left and then with hw yeah. you know the uh the statesman the kind of the last of the statesmen right. and, and we're left with kind of this hollow politics that that's just well it's sort of generationally the last two because yeah. remember he was uh, he was the last guy who really had served in a war and he was the last guy from world war ii and and we we you know we don't have any of those anymore so but anyway, it was really something. It was quite a yeah. uh, an event. Well, we we talked ourselves right into an hour, so yeah, uh, we'll have to talk a little bit about. I mean, do you have any thoughts? I mean, we got a, a a couple minutes here. I am curious before we go, your thoughts on the shutdown and and you know, obviously Trump caved and and Pelosi looked like she outmaneuvered him. So what do you what did what was your take on that? Yeah, that's a, you know, I think that's a really good question, and of course the you know the shutdown. Uh, was first of all, we all know it was the longest in history. Um, it, it probably cost about eleven billion dollars in a multi-trillion-dollar uh, budget. That's not a lot of money, but um, uh, it, it had an impact, and it certainly cost more than the five point six billion. Um, uh, I think you're also correct that Trump caved. I, I will say the the person who 
did the most for themselves in this is probably Nancy Pelosi. You know, she uh, went in, Trump immediately, if you remember the White House meeting, accused her of, or, or tried to diss her by saying she really wasn't secure in her power yet. She hadn't won the speakership and she chided him by saying, um, don't characterize my strength, Mr. President. And it should have been a little bit of a warning to him. Um, I, I think there are a couple things that came out of it. One is uh, there is there was a strengthening of the, the Congress as uh, a separate and equal branch of government. And I think if you're a Republican or a Libertarian, uh, if you're a Republican or Libertarian, uh, you think the Congress is an equal branch of government is a good thing. And so I think she settled that a bit. Uh, I think the other thing, and I would say she had a lot of spine. Uh, I thought her maneuver on the State of the Union was brilliant. I thought it was game changing. Um, and, you know, this is where you talk risk. It, it, you know, yeah. In what way was it game changing? Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, I hadn't even thought about it myself. And, you know, I was watching, I was trying to figure out where it was going to land. And uh, the fact that she said, okay, uh, you can't come, you know, you, you, you've changed the landscape. I'm going to change it too. So it really did change the dynamic, you know, it, he, and he thought he could pull his way around it. Remember he said, well, I'm going to come anyway. And of course it turns out you can't, you have to be formally invited. And uh, McConnell, and McConnell was not going to get caught giving him, no, yeah, he, he was, he wanted no part of it. No. The, the other thing that I think came out of it, is, you know, um, people, by and large, don't give a crap about federal workers and their pain. <laughs> you know, they basically think they're lazy and shiftless and everything else, even if they know someone. If they know a guy, well, you know, he's a federal worker. Um, and, I, and I think at the beginning of the shutdown, that was the attitude. But as, um, as things started to break down, and they did start to break down, you know, FAA, the uh, – uh, the airports and flying that all began break down with the TSA and um, the, the inspections. The the Food and Drug Administration had to stop doing inspections. The SEC you know, had stopped. You the know, SEC, right. you know, business guys who bitch and moan about um, the, the regulation, they still know they got to go through it. So they couldn't get anything done. They might not like it, but it's a process. The people getting permits out of EPA. Um, you know, who actually been getting them more easily all of a sudden couldn't get any. Um, so I think people by the end of it were starting to realize uh, that that these people actually do a job that that um, is embedded in our society. The other thing, of course, is they talked a lot about the 800,000. But in here in Northern Virginia, um, there are millions of people whose jobs are primarily and secondarily dependent on these guys and women coming home and doing their job. And, um, uh, you know, one thing everybody thinks is a federal worker is overpaid. Well, there are an awful lot of federal workers who make $22,000 a year and, and on average under 40 or, or thereabouts. And, you know, that's not a lot of money to live in those kind of circumstances. So uh, we, we know that probably over half, if not 55 or 60% of all Americans live paycheck to paycheck. So, uh, you could start to feel the impact in grocery stores and and uh, like the Smithsonian shuts down. Well, those cafeterias are run by private companies and the people who run them are private employees and they all lost their jobs and they're not going to make that money up. Federal employees will, uh, if they 
worked, if they were required to work without pay, they'll get their money back. You know, so some eight billion, I think they calculated of the eleven billion costs will come back to the economy, but some of it's lost. The the uh, ironic thing is that uh, they shut it down over a five point seven billion wall. And yeah. $5.7 billion was lost. <laughs> yeah, but it's never about – but, you know, and we all know it was not about the money. You know, right. Trump could not uh, – Trump has to get a wall for, for his supporters, you know, uh, and uh, Pelosi cannot let him have a wall for his supporters. So, uh, you know, I, I think they'll probably do some face-saving thing in the end, which is some commission uh, to determine – uh, if if and where a wall or barrier or steel or whatever the hell you want to call it is going to be put. Um, but um, that will be the only way out uh, because it, it's not about money. It's not about necessity. The conversation is not about what people need. It's about he promised a wall. He can't have it. He promised a wall. He has to have it. And, and so that's the it, it really is. The, you know, I, I'm and I'm obviously a libertarian and I look at it and I go eight hundred thousand unnecessary jobs like maybe there's some trimming and, and that's probably all true. And, you know, there's always the jokes and the memes that go around about, you know, the shutdown and and all that. And, and I th- think some of that's funny. And I do kind of it does resonate with me that, you know, you see week one like people having to pawn heirlooms and you just go you work for a, a company basically that has shut down how many times since 1980 like you don't yeah. uh, you don't save for a rainy day so there is a lot I, I don't have a lot of sympathy but i do think that it is not necessarily the appropriate nor is it the empathetic point of view from a libertarian to sit there and go you know, good, good. I'm glad these people are suffering uh, because it seems like a very cruel way to run a government because we're all kind of held hostage. These people are held hostage at at the egos of two people. That's why I want to decrease the power of government because, like, here we are having all these ill effects and you look at the Joshua trees and and the Easter seals on the on the beaches and all this stuff and you just go, you know, we're all held hostage by these two lunatics fighting over power. And what if we just take that away from yeah. them and then we don't have these yeah. problems anymore? Yes, but that so now we have a couple senators uh, trying to pass bills that, that I don't think will pass. I don't think they'll pass constitutional muster that would outlaw shutdowns hmm. by by authorizing that the budgets would just continue at the same level, and basically permanent continuing resolutions. I, I don't think that's going to pass in the end, but. Uh, but you know, you do have to have some empathy for these people, and it's not just eight hundred thousand people; it's another couple million people. Um, they're contractors who work for the government, and some of them, you know, I have a company that has government contracts, and fortunately, ours were funded already, and in other parts of the government, we got by. But think about the fact that the bulk of the people who were laid off were associated with security, national homeland security. They were. Uh, TSA, they were the customs agents, the the the, the, uh, the Secret Service protecting the president and his family were not getting paid. So um, that's the other irony of this, uh, that it was over that agency in particular. Uh, and then uh, State Department functions didn't get done. Of course, the State Department's not functioning anyway, as far as we can tell, since half of the uh, the ambassadors aren't appointed, so we have no one to talk to. So anyway, yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's just hard for people to find sympathy because when the when the IRS shut down my dad's business for two months over seventy five dollars, 
you know, they they didn't care if he wasn't getting paid. And so it's it's just not and I think a lot of people just the way that the nature of bureaucracy itself, if you read Ludwig von Mises bureaucracy, you kind of see how all this operates. And you just go, uh, you know, I have but I'll bet I, you I think your every dad got upset when he didn't get his tax refund. Because there's no one to process it. Oh, that's a whole different story with my dad and taxes. But, <laughs> but you know, it's just it, it. But it is. I. I. But I also kind of go. Well, you should extend the empathy that you wanted them to have for you towards them. Right. You know. That's and so right. it, that's that's right. really where the rubber meets the road and trying to make the world a better place is the people that you owe nothing to. How are you going to treat them? That's you know, right. But That's but right. I do totally understand the lack of empathy and uh, and also the outrage of people who are working and not getting paid. It's like uh, I wouldn't go to work if I weren't getting my paycheck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't well, blame Laguardia. <laughs> yeah. No. It's so I, I I think a couple things came out. But I, again, I'd say I'd say it was a major miscalculation on his part, on Trump's part, um, and in this big game. Uh, you know, Pelosi did win that one. And I will say, uh, you know, what I actually am more worried about uh, in the long run is whether or not this um, uh, discredits his approach um, more so than it is already discredited uh, with the Chinese and and uh, the Iranians and, uh, you know, everyone else he's negotiating with and taking this kind of hard line, you know, I'll never budge kind of stance. So, that, you know, that's what I worry about. There hasn't uh, been a time where he hasn't folded. There, there just isn't. There yeah. is, for the the great deal maker has folded every single time. And so when you hear North Korea saying this week, "Yeah, but we're still making nukes," you go, "Yeah, no kidding." Like, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, way well, but he doesn't believe it just because his intelligence chief said that. So. Uh, he's insane. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, you, you just look at this well, and you go, "I know the Democrats are going to screw this up somehow because that's what they do." <laughs> Uh, but we'll have to talk 2020 and some of that other stuff later. But, yeah. but let's end. Let's end on your guide to dining in DC. You you love oh, yeah. going out to eat, and so what is your recommendation if you visit the nation's capital? Where should you go? Well, so I I love um, good Mexican food, but you know there are two there are two levels of Mexican food. There is the taco level, and there can be good and bad ones. And there's some great, great, great street food level. Uh, Mexican and, and uh, Tex-Mex in Washington. Uh, but um, uh, fine Mexican dining is also a terrific experience. And there is a, uh, a restaurant that opened six or eight months ago in Washington over near the center city called Poca Madre with uh, uh, this very, very good chef, uh, uh, Victor Albizu. And uh, I, I would say that if you're uh, interested in something very different, we had a had a terrific duck uh, for the table that uh, you know you sort of shred and and had great makings of uh, with uh, soft tortillas and uh, several other interesting dishes that went with it and really really terrific uh, mezcal drinks. I, I love mezcal. <laughs> what what mezcal, is mezcal? Mezcal and rye. <laughs> Explain that to me. I'm 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 unfamiliar. Well, you know tequila. I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so mezcal is kind of a lower. Uh, it's I think it's made on it with a different plant. Okay, but it's still in the same kind of family of you know the big uh, cactus plants. Gotcha. And it's a it's a little typically a little raw and a little smokier. Mm. And what I like about it is the smoky, and uh, you can substitute it in some drinks for the tequila and 
I've had Mezcal Manhattans and <laughs> all that. But but I'll tell you, the food was great. Service is great. It's not a huge restaurant. It's a beautiful restaurant. So I, I recommend to you Poca Madre. All right. Very good. Well, uh, final thoughts? Anything that uh, people should be paying attention to between well, now and our I, next it's visit? It's been fascinating. And you and I can talk about it next next time we get together about 2020. Uh, I, I think we're I think what's fascinating is watching people start to tout Larry Hogan, and uh, he's on the Republican side, uh, not just uh, Kasich. And on the Democrat side, of course, you're starting to see a bunch of candidates. And I must say, I, I, I saw this uh, young mayor, uh, Buttigieg, as you told me his name is pronounced, who's the mayor of South Bend. I thought he was, uh, he's a Rhodes Scholar, very, uh, he, a little canned, but boy, he he, he not only had a good rationale for his running, but he actually could talk about what we should do in Afghanistan, which let me just say the, the, the clay feet for most presidential candidates are that they don't know anything about foreign policy. So, uh, and then I have another uh, good friend in, who's in politics uh, who is, um, who thinks Kamala Harris is going to be the uh, winner. And, you know, I don't, so, I, I think, I, I think her, I think her positions are wholly scary. And I think, yeah, that, that's, I think there are yeah. a lot of scary positions out yeah. there. So and I think I, I think she's I think so we she's, can talk about this. Yeah, we, we'll get we could we should not get into next. it because we have lots of thoughts, but we'll we'll yeah, shoot for next week. So all right, great. Well, uh, it was great talking to Two you. Weeks. And uh, yeah, let's we'll reconvene, and uh, maybe by that time we'll be in a different feed. So yeah, if you enjoy these conversations, I'll let you I'll let you listeners know when you can go jump into that feed and uh, you know send for, us any questions yeah and please send questions editor at wearelibertarians.com and uh, we love you know Rob loves to take your questions you can be like the press or whomever called on that phone when he worked for Gerald Ford and ask him questions <laughs> and then he can go get the answers and then and, and tell you what's up so alright th- thanks Rob it was great talking to you thanks alright 